0: Glass. Ice. Pour. Hello and welcome to Whiskey and Rye. I'm your host, Ryan Charles-Brown. And joining me on the show today is Steve Balton. Steve, thanks so much for being here, man.
1: It's my pleasure. Well, all right, let me rephrase that. It's my pleasure to be here with you. It's never my pleasure to be in the valley.
0: <laughs> you know, and especially on a day like today when I, it's pretty much triple digits. So, uh well, I
1: grew up in the valley, so there's that always that awkward thing of coming back. I actually grew up right by here and went to Birmingham High School.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Um what was that like going mm-hmm. to high school in the valley?
1: Um It was fine. It was <laughs> it was very nondescript. Yeah. You know, it was just one of those things where I think it's for anybody when you grow up someplace you have a love-hate relationship with it, mm-hmm. you know. If especially you know when it's home. Yeah. So funny. One of the first times I met Dave Grohl, we were talking about. Uh, it was at a, an event, and we were talking about the fact he mentioned something about being from the Valley, and I was like, "Dude, I'm sorry. I'm like the Valley sucks." <laughs> and he started laughing, and he just started cracking up. He's like, Ugh. "He's like, if I say that on stage that I'm you know live in the Valley, people will be like, I will fight you." <laughs> So he, he noticed the the you know love hate relationship people have with the valley. Yeah, there's some animosity there. There is, but I, yeah. I you know there's a fair amount of people who, who still live here and who still love it. So you know that heat though, man. I would come back and visit my mom, and it was always so funny because she would always talk about the fact that you know oh you always said if you moved to Long Beach that you wouldn't be that far. I'm like dude, it's not the distance. It's the fact that when you drive over the hill on the 405, your car literally gets 20 degrees hotter. Yeah. So, so that said, you know, it's still a pleasure to be here with you, you know, and we're in air conditioning, so I can live with it.
0: Yeah, it's nice to be here uh, in air conditioning, and I'm excited to have this conversation with you. We've hung out a couple of times, but, uh, you know, I don't know you uh, as well as I'd like to. Uh, you're... You're someone who I really respect. Your career, you've written for so many major publications, so many of my favorite publications. Um, and one of the things that I really enjoy about the opportunity to do this podcast is, um, for those who are still getting familiar with the show, a lot of what I gather my inspiration from is having conversations with people through driving through Lyft and Uber, uh, and just getting inspiration on how they do life. And and so I've I've actually really benefited from having people, um, you know, sharing conversations with people and getting to know them. And And that's really helped shape me, you know, as an individual. And so you've been able to sit down and talk with people who are, you know, pop culture icons and and people who are uh, of of strong influence. And so, you know, I would love to just kind of kick off our conversation to kind of hear if there's been there's been any conversations that you've had over your illustrious career that have, you know, shaped who you are today. Sure. I mean, I would say most of them.
1: Because that's, it's funny, I always say that's, I, I mean, I think to a lot of people, so so just so the background, because people aren't going to know, yeah. so currently I write at Forbes, also consult for a company called Live by Live, work with the Rose Bowl on a consulting basis, but I, I mean, I did two contracts at Rolling Stone, Billboard, LA Times, I, I've written for Maxim, Chicago Tribune, basically every major music publication that ever existed on the West Coast. Yeah. I have written for LA Times, LA Weekly. So I've done all of that. And, and I always say, though, and I mean, obviously, with that comes a lot of perks, free concert tickets. Yeah. But the thing that I enjoy most is just getting to talk to interesting people. yeah. And, and there's always, like, it's funny. I was just talking on the phone downstairs in the lobby while I was waiting for you. And I was talking with a publicist friend. We were talking about the uh, new David Crosby documentary, which is freaking mm-hmm. mind-blowing. It is so good. And I was fortunate to get to sit down two weeks ago with David, uh, David Crosby, mm-hmm. Cameron Crowe, and AJ Eaton, the director. And that was an amazing interview. And I, I had high expectations for it because I'm a big Cameron Crowe fan. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I had interviewed David before. But it was one of those things where it's like, it, it, it's funny. I think when you have so many conversations, it's hard for certain nuggets to stick out. But David made a comment about, I had asked him about, you know, I asked each of them what they want people to take from the film. And David goes, well, one thing is that people's lives don't finish where you think they do. Mm-hmm. Which was such a profound quote. And it was amazing to watch Cameron and AJ, who had spent a year with him, just kind of look at each other in disbelief. Like he really just came up with that off the top of his head. Yeah, yeah. And it's nuggets like that. Like I was talking with Steve Van Zandt from the E Street Band, who I absolutely love, you know, and he was talking about the fact that I thought this was a great quote too. You could have never dreamed my life. Mm. And, uh, you know, because I was asking what it was like, you know, as a, imagine as a 14 year old kid. To think that one day he would be, you know, on The Sopranos and play guitar for arguably the greatest live band of all time, mm-hmm. and he said you could have never dreamed that. And I, I thought that was so interesting because if you would have told me at 14 that I would have interviewed every living member of Led Zeppelin, I would have told you you were out of your freaking mind. Yeah. And it's just those nuggets. Another one that I remember was Roger Daltrey from The Who, and he was an interesting dude. He was, he was very cool, but very. Um, little darker than I expected. Okay. And it's funny because I was talking about it with someone the other day and Pete Townsend was super nice. And Townsend was uh, actually asked me to come meet him backstage after his show at the Greek and, and very warm. And Daltrey was just, a- again, he was a little harder than I expected, not in terms of he was a great interview, mm-hmm. but two things. One, I asked him, we were doing it at the sunset marquee and I asked him about, being at that hotel and if he went in ever to the uh morrison gallery to look at the artwork and his response really surprised me and he goes no he's like i he's like no because i go in there and all i see are dead friends on the wall and i thought that was a really interesting comment but the one that i really loved was he was i was doing the interview with him he was doing a benefit concert at the oc fair so i just realized i was talking really fast too but he was doing a benefit concert at the OC Fair, and he had filled in for Ray Manzarek from the Doors, who had just passed away. And so he agreed to come on and do the benefit for Teenage Cancer Trust, which was something that was very close to his heart. And so I asked him if he knew Ray Manzarek, and this was one of the best quotes ever still. He goes, he mentioned that he would met him. He goes, but, you know, it takes a lot of years to know somebody. I've met thousands of people, but no very few. So little nuggets like that from interviews. Absolutely. And then you start to think about them and they stay with you. And I think about that as well, because think about what I do for a living. I'll sometimes talk to three, four people in a day. Right. And I would say that very few of them know me and vice versa. Mm
0: hmm. Yeah, I feel the same The same applies for what I've been doing in the Lyft and Uber, just on a smaller scale, and they're not famous rock stars, right? <laughs> but but there's this comfort comfortability that people have. They get in the car. We know that it's just a small amount of time. And I get those same sort of thing, you know, at those moments of inspiration. I think that's really beautiful, and it, it sort of restores my faith in humanity kind of on a daily basis, you know, because especially living in a big city like L.A. where people are, you know, it's a hyper-individualized city relationships are transactional from time to time. Um, I think it's really beautiful that amongst all of this, like you can still connect with people, uh, and have some sort of interaction. And well, it's yeah. interesting
1: you say that cause I, I took a lift, uh, yesterday or Sunday, Sunday. I had a meeting in Long Beach. I lived down in Long Beach. Yeah. And it's funny because I have to drive to LA all the time. I rarely ever get to use Lyft because it's just cost prohibitive. Right. But I had a meeting in Long Beach. And so for me, if I'm doing something in Long Beach and I don't have to drive, it's freaking great. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, so I took Lyft. And it's funny because it's it's almost like, yeah, like, I, I think when you get in someone's car, you feel almost an obligation to talk to them because it is an intimate experience. It really is, yeah. You think about, you know, all the times like when you would ride with your friends or do road trips or whatever. And now it's a fascinating thing that you get in. But it's, it's funny. I took one and I was in San Diego on Friday. And this woman was telling me that... You know, she was asking me how my experience was because I think she drove me first or second I can't remember but she was telling me that she had heard from other people that lift drivers in San Diego can be so rude mm. that that basically like she was telling me the story about how one passenger in a car said that she had a driver who said don't talk to me shut up you wow. know but it's funny I, I told her in my experiences I don't recall ever having having ever having had a rude lift driver
0: yeah. I mean, I think that's great, and shout out to Lyft for you know hiring good people. But yeah, I uh, the only barrier I've ever really had is language barrier. Those are the only people that I don't usually make able to connect with. But um, yeah, it's just so funny. I've had everything from the quiet drivers or the quiet passengers to those who are telling me their life story, and even. I even had a situation where i got in the car and the driver's like can i ask you a question i was i've been thinking about this for a while right and we have this conversation about a relationship that he's involved in and uh you know it's really it's really interesting but i i um i'm interested in you just you you talked about you just recently talked about this documentary uh, and you were able to talk with cameron crowe and He's one of my favorite directors. Um he's done a couple of movies that I really love, but almost famous specifically is, you know, probably my my favorite Cameron Crowe film, and that's kind of a coming-of-age tale, right? Like it's about this young boy who's experiencing this like accelerated route to masculinity. And, you know, he's sort of figuring out on his own way. He has these rock stars in Stillwater that he aspires to be like, and he's sort of thrust into this lifestyle, um, but then almost rebels from it at the end, you know, and and is just like, I just want to go home. You know, and so I, I think that's really I think it's interesting that you're able to sit down and talk with him as he is someone who kind of takes this narrative of the journey into manhood and masculinity and, and kind of puts it on the silver screen in a way that people can relate to. You know, yeah, um, yeah it's cool.
1: because if you look at a film like Elizabethtown as well, which is one of those films that everybody hated, but I really loved. And that was the first time I did an extensive interview with Cameron. We talked about that. And you look at Orlando Bloom's character. And it's very much about manhood and coming into mm-hmm. manhood. But coming into what real manhood is versus the idea of what we expect it to be, because basically he has failed yeah. on, a, on a, as they put it, a, a, you know, super catastrophic level. I mean, basically right. he's cost company a billion dollars. Right. So for the idea of what masculinity used to be of being successful and being a breadwinner and all that, you know, he was a massive failure. Mm-hmm. But then he meets this woman. He took more importantly, he takes care of the family, you know, is able to bury his father take care of all those differences and then sort of begin his journey as an adult. Yeah. So it's
0: all of these things happen. He goes through extreme loss, and he goes through all these things, and then that kind of propels him into into manhood. And I think it's into
1: inter- into uh, sorry, I was just gonna say into a different idea of manhood.
0: Right, exactly. Into into a new framework, into a new way of positioning his his manhood. And I think those stories are particularly interesting um, because most of the time in in the media, when you see a man, it's uh, the hero. You know, he's he's acquiring all of these things, but very rarely do you see someone lose everything to then gain everything. And I think that's an, a, a really a, a, an important part to any journey into masculinity. I, I talk about rites of passage a lot um, and how there's sort of an absence of rites of passage into manhood and masculinity in the West, except for if you think about... Um, things like traumatic events like, you know, divorce or extreme loss or, you know, unexpected changes, um, those are all rites of passage initiations into manhood, but in sort of a negative context, and I think that one of the things I aspire to do with this space is create more of a, of an even playing field for those who maybe have experienced a traumatic entry into manhood to process that, to talk about it, and then to, to kind of begin to work through those phases, you know? Yeah.
1: Um. Well, it's interesting though, but because it, it's funny, because when you are talking about it in the West, you know, and I think about it, it's yeah, I grew up Jewish. I don't practice. Oh, okay. I don't believe in organized religion. That's personally for me. But growing up Jewish, of course, there is the bar mitzvah mm-hmm. and the, that you know sort of right of manhood. Exactly. You know, right. and it's an interesting thing though, as you as you think about all these things, and it, it's funny because I remember joking with people about it. You know, look, <laughs> bar mitzvah at thirteen made a lot of sense thousands of years ago mm-hmm. when you lived to be thirty, right. you could be a man at thirteen. But however. You know, you can change the freaking r- rules, you right, know, right? just like it, we're at points now where there are things in the constitution we should change. We're going to leave that alone because that's a whole other subject matter. Sure. But, you know, I certainly think that, you know, it makes more sense now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, I don't think you really become an adult now until you hit almost 30. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. And, 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 it, it, and it's I an arbitrary 30. number. It depends on how you live your life. Yeah. But I will say it's funny because I have a lot of, I taught a program for several years called Grammy Camp. Oh, cool. um, you know, so I was working with high school students and then I would stay in touch with them. And also just by nature of what I do, going to a lot of shows, being out all the time, I have a lot of friends who are younger. And I tell everyone the truth. 20s are the worst decade of your life because mm-hmm. you really have no concept of who you are. You're yeah. sort of, you know, <laughs> it's like that Alice Cooper song, 18. Mm-hmm. I'm a boy and I'm a man, except for instead of 18, it's now 25, 26, 27, because no one knows what the freak they're doing when they get out of college. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. Um, And it's, it's funny, like, uh, we sort of have seen this shift in now of like, you know, this sort of growing up later in life. But I agree. I think once you hit 30, you've gone through enough that you can kind of have a framework to look at your life and and, and look at different moments and kind of look at those defining, those defining moments. And I, um, you know, I want to talk about your podcast that's coming up, but um, I also think it's really interesting. I grew up Christian, Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that had a a really big um, impact on my identity growing up. And so... um, you know, when did you decide like Judaism's not for me? Because I've sort of deconstructed my faith and, and I, I've put something back together that kind of makes sense, but it looks kind of spiritual and is more That's community focused. It's, it's more, and stuff. It,
1: for me, it's more spiritual. It's not that Judaism in particular is not for me, it's that organized religion is not for me. Yeah. I find it to be. Well, you know, not to go off on a a tangent or a rant or a soapbox, but I find it to be reprehensible. And I think the issue is it's funny. Like, for example, we have mutual friends. That's how we know each other. Mm -hmm. Like Michelle and Joey. Mm -hmm. I believe that, you know, they genuinely believe in what it is Mm -hmm. that they practice. Mm -hmm. And I've known people like that. It's funny. My ex-wife, who I'm still very close friends with and, you know, we're very close. Her aunt was someone who um, I disagreed with. Every one of her ideals, we were complete opposites, Mm -hmm. but I always respected her convictions because I believed that that she really believed it versus simply Mm -hmm. a tale of, okay, this is, you know, what I'm supposed to say. Mm -hmm. I honestly believe that that I mean, and this this is going to get, you know, we'll go off in a a different tangent here. But I was just talking about this with a friend the other day. I, I blame the religious right for everything that's happening in this country right now. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is that very simply, I think that if you are a, a, you know, a person of values and spirituality, you know that Donald Trump is a reprehensible human being mm-hmm. in every level. The issue is, is that they didn't care because for some reason, a lot of the religious right, not all, but a lot of people convinced themselves that they were the persecuted. And for them, it's okay. We're going to do whatever it is. Mm-hmm that is necessary to get our agenda pushed forth. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that, they've sacrificed a lot of other people just simply to, you know, because they seem to think they have a direct line to God, right. even though, as I say, I think that, you know God would probably say to most of them, "Lose my number." <laughs> yeah, you know don't, that. Don't that's text how, me. But <laughs> I yeah. love that. Lose my number. Yeah, but I mean, it's so it's I, I have a deep problem with organized religion. Putting it on a more personal level, when it comes to Judaism, I mean, it's funny for me. Like and going back to what I was joking about with the you know bar mitzvah being in later in life. Yeah. Look, the simple fact is, if you tell to be bar mitzvah at thirteen, you start Hebrew school at nine years old. You tell a nine year old you need to do four more hours of school a week and go in the afternoon. The response is basically going to be screw you right I don't want to go right you know that's part of the nature it, it creates a um uh what's the word? conflicting relationship to begin mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. and then on a personal note I mean you know it's interesting I was going to school at NYU and my mom one of her best friends my uh brother's godmother um this is actually is funny I was telling this story to someone the other day and he's like Is that a movie, whatever? And it actually was turned into a movie and a TV story, but it's a horrible story. Um, She was temple president of a new new temple in the valley here. She was having an affair with the rabbi. She had married a guy for money, a crooked bookkeeper, a crooked accountant. She knew all of his secrets and could send him to jail, so he had her murdered. She was shot in... That sounds like a film. It was made into both a TV... It was made into a book and a TV movie. And because it was such a messed up story... And I thought that the work done about it was so sensationalistic. I'm not going to mention any names because I thought it was all very cheesy. Like my mom had to testify in the trial. Recently, we found out that the husband, the gunman, by the way, got away. He was in a motorcycle or on a motorcycle. I should say he pulled up next to her when she was leaving work and just shot her through the window of her car. He got away. He was never found. The husband was convicted of murder for hire and he um, died in prison. Wow. So, but the, all that being said, all of this took place in the backdrop of a temple. Right. So, so I saw the hypocrisy. And, so, and you know, and it's funny, even in Judaism, and again, there are great Jews, mm-hmm. just as there are great Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, there are people who genuinely believe it. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people who also are very sanctimonious about it and use it to further their own agenda. And what I was going to say is part of the issue, it's funny, my mom is buried in a Jewish cemetery. That's what she wanted. Oh, okay. Right. And the thing is, like, it is... Um, Oh, what I was going to say. You know, I go back to the idea of high holidays, you know, growing up. Mm -hmm. First of all, you know, I joke about the fact that we were high holiday Jews. Mm -hmm. You know, my my parents would only ever go to temple, you know, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And it's funny, one of my favorite Woody Allen lines ever is, I think, I can't remember which movie it was now. He's talking about being not as liquid. And he's like, my parents will have to sit further from God. You know, and you paid for where you sat in the temple. Mm-hmm. How is that religion? How is that yeah. spiritual yeah. to say, oh, okay, well, if you want to go to temple, you need to pay X amount of dollars. Right. You know, so yeah. so uh, there's where a lot of my issues with religion come up. That's probably way more than you were looking for. But it's funny because oh. on both personal levels and political levels, I, I just see. And again, I, I clarify this with the fact that I know there are a lot of great people. Mm-hmm you know who believe very passionately in stuff the problem is is that so many of them use it simply to like i say further their agenda mm. or it's you know the whole thing of like you know <laughs> Uh, what's the word? I'm looking confession. Yeah, and you get your repentance, and it's like, no, it doesn't give you an excuse to be an asshole. Right.
0: Yeah. No, I, a lot of what you're sharing is is my par- is parallel to my frustrations with Christianity, and, and I also think organized religion and what we're seeing now with um, sort of the movement of the evangelical church and how that's tied in politically. There was a reason that they want that they tried to separate church and state, right? Because church is all about emotion. You get people emotionally riled up, and they will do whatever you need them to do you know you can control them through that and now we've seen that pull pulled into our political sphere which is now you see like you said good people people who you know two years ago or I I don't know three years ago now when this whole thing went down before then um if you would have asked them you know maybe five ten years out like hey you're gonna kind of like you were saying you're gonna interview all these people like you're crazy like hey you're gonna actually bring into power one of the worst presidents we've ever had they'd be like no i'm not going to do that i'm a christian i'm a god fearing christian i love reagan it's like yeah that's the problem right um but i
1: but i see it's really interesting too what you're just saying i hadn't thought about it but it is amazing because that mob mentality because if you had yeah. asked the individuals i'm sure that 90 of individuals you would have asked would have said there's no way in hell that i would ever be okay with kids being detained in immigration that is being separated yeah. from their families yeah. but the mom the mob excuse me not the mob the mob mentality pushes it into oh, okay well this is you know if everybody else says it's acceptable yeah and that's and that's exactly what you're talking about with the uh, emotion of the church and mm-hmm. it's funny i hadn't thought about it so just now but if you would have asked the individuals 5 years ago before trump came into power would you be okay mm-hmm. with taking kids separating them from their families putting them into these camps and you know keeping them there like prisoners mm-hmm. Every individual would have said no.
0: You would have got a hundred percent no. But, yeah. But now here we are in this reality, and there's all this justification. There's this sort of like blind following the leadership, and um, it's a yeah, freaking cult. Yeah. No, it, it really is. And um, you know, I I obviously have my thoughts politically, but my where my passion is because I am a person of faith. I feel convicted to try to do something to these people that I called my family for so long you know what I mean I grew up in the church I grew up a Christian I still consider myself a believer in Jesus so I feel like I have like a responsibility right now to eliminate some of this um, damage that's being done and, and um, so and part of the way that I'm doing that is just kind of talking with people and, and helping people see this thing that we're talking about is that you know this this idea where we are right now like we've all some people landed here without really realizing it and it's time now I think the responsibility now is for people when they start to see these things like we have very tangible reasons to not like this president I, I've, I've talked with people who voted for the president and they talk about his policies as the thing that they they agree with and so I don't see now how that is still an applicable sort of justification policy wise like there's so many things that have happened that we've reduced humanity or there's been an attempt to reduce humanity to a certain level and so y- you've, we've got to stand up for that I mean these are human beings right and we're we're just acting so primitive yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I had one friend who, you know, being in L.A. and especially being in entertainment, Mm -hmm. the vast majority of the people I surround myself with tend to be, uh, would be the traditional blue staters. Okay. I had one friend who voted for, uh, you know, that guy whose name I will not name. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because when I would call him out on it, he's like, well, at least he's getting stuff done. I'm like, yeah, but he's doing all shit. Mm -hmm. But his point was literally that, you know, unlike Obama, Mm -hmm. who, I mean... (laughs) it's a whole separate conversation and it's just, I know we took a big political turn. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. (laughs) I'm always happy to talk politics and it's funny because I think, you know, again, I, I think a lot of what's really happened now and it's fascinating, but this has come up quite a bit and it's not an original thought, but I've seen people talk about this and it's true. I mean, where you stand politically now also talks about who you are as a person. Yep. Because if you can support the racism, the hatred, the misogyny, Mm -hmm. it's not about a political preference anymore. Mm -hmm. It's what you support as a person. Yeah. You know? And that's the issue. It doesn't matter. I mean, I'm sure there are still some good Republicans, although at this point it's hard to find any because they've been willing to do whatever it is they can to stay in power. Just by the way, as I also know, there are a lot of crappy Democrats. Yes. I think there are a lot of people who even, you know, went in with good intentions and then what happens is they get corrupted by the power. Yeah. I, I think that happens to a lot of people. That said... You know, there's a difference between being, a, a, you know, a person who means well, who got steered wrong, and someone who very intentionally is trying to divide yeah. and hurt. And, and you know, and, and I mean, every time I think he can't go any lower, then he'll pull something else. And I'll be like, it's funny. At, at, at some points, I really believe, and I've said this for years, he's almost trying to be like a comic book supervillain. Yeah. You know, see how much I can be hated yeah. and then take it to the next level.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. What did you think about his interactions with Kanye and how he was sort of like pulling the music world into what he was doing? What are your thoughts on that? F Kanye. I was talking (laughs) about this with someone
1: the other day, man. What a freaking hypocrite. Here's this guy who goes on TV, by the way. Who says You watched his Letterman interview? Is that no, what you're talking No, I, I no. Oh, okay. I think about years ago, I was talking about this with a friend of mine who we would worked together at Rolling Stone. Remember when Kanye went on TV and got in all this trouble for saying George Bush doesn't care about black people? Yes. But now he supports Trump and wears a MAGA hat? I'm sorry, George Bush, there was a lot that I disagreed with him about, but I believe at heart he's a good person. Yeah. I believe that he wanted the best for people. I think he was, you know, didn't always go about it the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, history tends to be kinder to him. But I mean, seriously, how are you going to say that George Bush doesn't care about black people? And then you're cool with Trump? Yeah. You know? I know. I, I mean, yeah. So, look, I get the fact that there's the idea that Kanye has mental illness. There's all this. Yeah. But he's an asshole. He always has been. Yeah. I remember being in a room with him years ago, so many years ago, it was at... I, I don't know. It was a brunch thing or whatever. It was some press call And he was talking about the fact that, you know, people, if he wanted to be interviewed, people should pay him to be interviewed because they're using his likeness on the magazine cover. You know, and I think it's one of those things where it's always been mercenary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I think there is talent there, mm-hmm. but it, it becomes very difficult to distinguish that talent. And and again, it's it's a very simple thing. How could you say that Bush doesn't care about black people, but you could be cool with Trump? Yeah, who just this past week once again is referring to you know brown and black people as infested, right? You know, so I, I mean. I think—and Trump is going to use anybody who thinks he makes him look better. It's funny because I actually happen to be friends with ASAP Rocky. I absolutely love Rocky. Oh, I
0: love Rocky, yeah. He's a
1: great dude. We've hung out a lot. I mean, I would love nothing more than to see him out of jail. Mm-hmm. But the thought of Trump using him for political gain is— Yes. Oh, disgusting. If he does four years in office and accomplishes one good thing, mm-hmm. well, okay then. Yeah. But, of course, it's funny because, you know— it there was no diplomacy involved in it. it was just a temper tantrum. It's not surprising right. it didn't work.
0: Right, yeah, no, of course. You know,
1: this is, these, this is the way these things go. I mean, but in terms of the music community, I, I mean, it's funny. There's a very clear delineation. Yeah. The vast majority of musicians can't stand him. Mm-hmm. What was interesting and what I really enjoyed was that you started to see a, a social consciousness awakening yeah. in the beginning. I did a piece in 2007. What I started to do in December 2016 when I was working for Forbes, after the, uh, which I still am working at, after the election, every person I interviewed, I started to ask them about not their political beliefs, but how what was happening in the world was affecting both their writing and their recording, mm. and as well their touring. Yeah. And it was fascinating because no matter who I talked to, they said – that it had an impact on them directly and what you started to see was bands like Zed and Lumineers who were younger artists mm-hmm. start to put together their own benefits Lumineers did one for Planned Parenthood Zed did Welcome Home for Immigration mm-hmm. you know I would talk to people I got very lucky and in the span of 16 months I was like probably the only person alive who interviewed all four members of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young albeit individually wow. so I'm talking to four different people about this social consciousness and it's funny because yeah. Neil Young said in December of 2016 he said we're going to see a social awakening that we haven't seen he told me this for Vice he said we're going to see a social awakening awakening we haven't seen since the 60s because for the first time there's actually a person with a target on their back Mm -hmm. we're referring to you know that whose name i did use but i prefer not to use yeah yeah. and it's really interesting because that was one of the the sort of uh you know silver linings to emerge from it was all these people developing their consciousness because very simply as i talked about musicians and it's right you even see someone like taylor swift and nothing against taylor swift i've interviewed her many times she's not personally my favorite but i have nothing against her but she had always stayed very apolitical Mm -hmm. and then she came out for lgbtq people and i think people started to realize that as a musician not saying anything was hurting your career it's compliancy yeah Yeah. exactly it was it was just being yeah
0: taking a quick break from my interview with steve to give you a great opportunity from my podcasting service podbean if you are a podcaster or if you're an aspiring podcaster you've been thinking about doing a podcast for a while i would invite you to check out podbean for your hosting service they're the service that i use and i absolutely love them they're super great and their customer service is awesome and i really enjoy it so if you are looking to sign up for podbean as your hosting service you can use the exclusive code that's provided in the show notes and i'll give it to you also right right now it is podbean.com slash whiskey rye that's podbean.com slash whiskey rye you sign up you get all sorts of great things and that also helps support the show and keep it going so uh if you are a podcaster looking for a hosting site or you're an aspiring podcaster highly recommend podbean they're great go over to podbean.com and check them out all right let's head back for more with steve balton Yeah. We live in a time right now where there's a social responsibility. And if you have social credibility and you're not speaking out against some of these things, you know, we obviously Colin Kaepernick is one of the most famous ones from the sports world. But um, yeah, I'm glad you brought up festivals and I'm glad you brought up um, the response that music does in these types of things, because I'm thinking about like Live Aid, and I'm thinking about you know the big festivals that were done, and I think music is really a unifier among people, and um, I think there's an amazing opportunity right now. Um, for for a ton of music to happen, like we're, in, I think, like a renaissance, right? Like people were saying, like, oh, we're in the dark ages. Yeah, but after dark ages, it was the renaissance, right?
1: It's funny you say that. I just saw headline the other day. I didn't see click on the article, but I had uh, I had just seen Queen and Brian May, uh, Queen with Adam Lambert, I should say, at the Forum. Amazing show. And I saw an article that came out a couple days later that Brian May wants another Live Aid for climate change. I I think you will start to see yep. more of these types of events because more and more people want to contribute and and particularly when it comes to climate change Mm -hmm. you know it's such an important issue
0: Mm
1: -hmm. and I mean let's face it You know, if it doesn't get fixed, we're all going to be dead in 20 years.
0: We're all going to be scorched. I mean, we're we're feeling it today. So, you know what I mean? But I
1: mean, you see it with all the, you know, the crumbling glaciers and all that stuff. Well, even Long Beach. Long Beach is a port city. And
0: the mayor of Long Beach has done great work on um, making sure that the city is doing what they can to be environmentally conscious. But Long Beach could be underwater in like (laughs) 20 years, like or 50 years or 100 years or something if we just sort of like let things... Let now, go. Unfortunately,
1: that's the case for a lot of places. But I, I, you know, coming back to the music thing, I do think you'll start to see a lot more mm-hmm. of these these bigger benefits. You know, and 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 musicians are understanding as well. It's funny. I was talking earlier about quotes and how those inspired me. Mm-hmm. And Steven Tyler from Aerosmith does a, a Grammy party. Uh, Every year now he's only done it for two years, but you know, he he's talked about the fact with me He wants to make it a tradition and it's a wonderful event. It's it's for an organization called Janie's uh, Fund, you know if you remember he had the song Janie's got a gun. Yep, so this event benefits victims of sex trafficking And underage abuse. And it's an incredibly powerful event because he actually lets these victims come up and speak. So it's not just throwing a check at it. It really, you know, you hear their tales and you get to know them as people. And it's a mind-blowingly great event because it puts faces on these and really gets Mm -hmm. you invested. And the reason I bring it up specifically is I was talking with Alice Cooper at One this past year. And he was saying that, you know, the importance of being there. And he said that as you get older, your fame is basically, you know, the brand that allows you to do good. And I love that quote because I do think that as you have any level of success, as you get older, it does become more and more your responsibility to give back in the ways you can. So yeah. at Forbes, for example, I'll do stories all the time. And that quote people. was
0: from Alice Cooper, by yeah. the way. Like, I want to put that out there, right? <laughs> like, that wasn't from, like, you know james taylor or like some <laughs> kumbaya dude you know what i mean this is from alice cooper and Who, i think by the that's way, important. sober
1: for 30 years right and is very active in giving back to the community exactly but what i was gonna say is it's funny for me like at forbes for example if there's someone doing a philanthropic cause or event i'm happy to support it like jason derulo for example i always use him as an example nice guy mm-hmm. musically it's maybe not exactly my style mm-hmm. but a very nice guy he did a haiti benefit I gladly did a feature with him on the fact that he was doing this, because it's important that he was giving back for the first time. And I thought that was really yeah. great and I wanted to support that.
0: Yeah. I mean, of course, like we're, we live in a time where we're building that up is good. And I think the support for underground things, because this, this is a time where there's funding being cut, where we need people who have passions for these things to just step up and start doing something. Um, and, is this? I want to talk a little bit about the Grammy Camp. I don't know if this is a good time to parallel into the Grammy Camp, but um, you did some work with kids. You've got the 10th anniversary Grammy Camp shirt on today. Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what you did and what that was, what that was like, and what it provided.
1: Yeah. Well, I was teaching music journalism for students, oh, cool. and I loved working with the kids. and And it's funny, I did it for 13 years. I'm still friends with numerous kids, uh, still friends with a lot of the faculty, and I think that. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's just one of those things that, you know, I would tell them all the time. It's funny because, you know, I, I live this life where I would be hanging out with rock stars and I would teach during the day. And then at night I would go, you know, backstage with Lincoln Park or whatever it was I was doing at the time. Right. And they'd always be mystified by the fact that I actually wanted to do this because mm-hmm. they always thought the life seemed, you know, outside of it seemed so much good. But as I told them, it was always my favorite thing I did. And they couldn't figure that out. But as I would talk to them about when they're dealing with musicians as well. You know, there's something so joyful about giving back and also seeing people who are excited about it.
0: Yeah.
1: And I always use the story. It's funny. In 2013, I mean, everybody's excited to work with kids. Yeah. Everybody's excited to give back. Give back. November 2012, I was doing a story when they were relaunching MySpace. And I did a story with the, the brothers whose names escape me now and Justin Timberlake. Mm. And it was really funny because we were talking about the different ways – that social media that kids intake social media and what they want from it Mm -hmm. and i mentioned that i know this from grammy camp and justin was like i didn't know you do grammy camp he's like oh that's cool he's like if you ever want me to come speak with the kids and i'm like yeah whatever right yeah and it's so funny because then his publicist is looking at him like justin shut the fuck up yeah you know like and and then the brothers were like how's he gonna get out of this and it's fine like whatever i'm not holding him to this right and he mentions it again and I was wow. like, all right, dude, whatever. And then finally at the end, he's like, yeah, if you ever want me to come speak, I'm like, dude, okay. I'm like, I'm going to hold you to that then. He's like, hey, I'm from Tennessee. I keep my word. Yeah. Five months later, he puts out 2020 and is a surprise performer. Basically, is announced last minute for Grammys. He agreed to do one interview that entire year. He turned down the cover of Rolling Stone. I was at Rolling Stone at the time. He turned down the cover, turned down all interviews except for with two of my high school students. And he talked about in the interview, very simply, it's because they came at it from a pure place. They were real fans. They didn't come in with an agenda of looking for anything. Mm-hmm. A- and it's just that simple. I think for everyone who does it, you enjoy seeing it through their eyes and their excitement and enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for me, who's written for 25 years, like, I love doing it. And I go through cycles, though, like everyone. There are days when it's great. And then there are days when it's just like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And even the, like the biggest show. Coachella this year, I went for five hours. I was like, screw this. I'm you just left. <laughs> yeah, I was like that. I was like, yeah. And and I mean, you know, and and my students would never understand that, but it's like, this was my 17th Coachella with all access, Mm -hmm. you know, at some point you're just like, cool, been there, done that, you know? Well, and Coachella is more,
0: I mean, I've been in LA for nine years and Coachella is different in the nine years that I've been in LA than it is now. I mean, I, every, every time. Ever since it split to the two weekends, it's never been the same. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, that was, like, kind of the the death rattle, you know what I mean, to, to quote Lester Bang, your um, Death Cough. Um, but, yeah, I, going back to what you were saying about connecting with those genuine fans, I think a lot of people who reach a very high celebrity status, um, they're probably tired of talking the bullshit, you know what I mean? The The same old story, the same old whatever. They want to connect with the people that are, like, so passionate about what they do and how it and, and, and it's made an impact on their life, right? And I think that's well, it's, really cool. It's
1: partly that and it's also partly that everybody wants something from them. You know, so yeah. with fans, there's nothing really that they can ask for just to be fans. It's funny, I always go back to I, I think one of the reasons I get the access I do, and I've talked about this with people, like when I did the book with Lincoln Park in two thousand four, two thousand five, I went on the road with them. Was like, Chester
0: was Chester alive? Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: Okay. No, that was that was one All that right, hit me very can. hard. We became good friends, and he's great, dude. Um, you know, but in two thousand four, I did those book with them, right? And when when the tour was done, I actually went on the road with them, slept on the tour bus, and everything. And as soon as it was done, it was like, cool, I'm going home. Like, I got shit to do. I'd rather hang out with my wife, with my friends. You know, I'll see you guys on the next album. And that was so much a part of why we became friends and why I got the access I did with them and then with everybody else is because very simply... I don't care. Right. I'm not trying to be your best friend. Whereas everybody else is like, hey, we should hang out. Right. We should do this. And it's like, dude, most musicians, by the way, after they become famous, don't take on new friends. Their yeah. friends are the people they were friends with from the time. So if you're freaking, you know, Justin Bieber or Avril Lavigne or anyone who became fam- famous at like 15, 16, chances are your friends are the people you were friends with at eight years old. Yeah. Because I've talked about this with a lot of musicians. Yeah. So I think it's really honestly the fact that very simply they don't want things from them.
0: Yeah. And it's just, like, uh, pure. Like you said, it's pure. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's what Justin was saying. Is there ever been a person that you, like, were really excited to interview, like, that you kind of, like, geeked out on? Like, that maybe if you were put your stuff in those kids'
1: shoes, like, anybody that you can think of? Yeah, it's funny. I'll, I'll tell you a story about that it's because it's, it's really interesting. My two favorite artists of all time are Springsteen is number one. Uh, Tom Waits is number two. Okay. Right? And it was really funny because... I was at Rolling Stone, and I requested to do an in-studio the studio with Tom for Mule Variations. And his publicist at the time, who's since retired but was a friend for 20-something years, right? she was like, he's not going to do it. He doesn't do it in the studios, but I will ask. Saturday afternoon, um, in Ventura with Allie, my ex, I get an email saying that Tom wants to, I was so excited, I actually had to go out of the restaurant so I could scream. <laughs> I was so excited. But this is where it gets funny, right? So eventually we get to the day of the interview and I am so nervous. So his public, his assistant calls and said, Tom's going to call you in a few minutes. Right? So the phone rings and I pick it up and I know it's going to be Tom Woods, but there's something different because there's no hello. anything. Like that. He just literally goes, Steve, Tom. And I'm like, wow, you know, wow. I do the interview. I'm inside. I am dying. Yeah. Right. But I'm interviewing him for freaking Rolling Stone. Yeah. So I'm trying to be professional. Right. And all this. Long story short, the interview goes fine. Afterwards, his publicist tells me, she's like, yeah, he liked talking to you. She's like, but it was funny. He goes, that guy was so cool. Is he even a fan? And oh, I was like, wow. I learned from that lesson to never again pretend to be something I'm not. So this being said, it's funny. I interviewed Patti Smith again recently, like a few months ago. For, Love Patty. Oh, she's incredible.
0: She, she's, and an activist and just a yeah. badass, man. And
1: you know what's so fascinating about her? I was talking about this with someone who, uh, another journalist who's interviewed her because I geeked out so hard oh, and she yeah. could not have been kinder about it. She was so nice because the first time I'd interview her was like 20 years ago. Okay. And I, you, know, you do this stuff when you're younger and you think, oh, it'll happen all the time. Yeah. And then it takes 20 years to get to do the next interview. And you realize like it may never happen again. Yep. And she was so kind as I just sat and fond. And it was funny because then I was talking about it with a friend. She's one of those she realizes the effect she has on people. So she's really good about calming them down, mm. you know, because yeah. she's aware of the fact that, you know, people just freak out with her, you yeah. know? Yeah. And by the way, you know, I would put her right there with Springsteen as the greatest live performer of all time. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I just mean, pure her voice. Is yeah. Just and like, just the, the energy. Ugh. yeah. I, uh, I have,
0: I've learned through doing a handful of interviews now, um, to just not take any opportunity for granted. You know, every person that I sit down with and, and talk to, um, I'm just trying to be so locked in here in the moment, you know, and it's, it's hard because I play producer as I'm also recording too, right? So I'm the host and I'm the producer. And so I've got a million things in my head at once. Um, but I'm learning one of the skills I'm practicing in this time is just, just being here in the moment because these organic conversations and these things that come up are great. And I have, I, I have an amazing opportunity to talk with, you know, someone like yourself who's been, in a seat that I would love to be in, you know, and has, has lived uh, a life that I find just so fascinating and so interesting. So I appreciate that you, um, get in those moments and you really connect with your interviewer because you made a comment that some days are better than others. And I'm sure sometimes you get, uh, uh, you get people who are in like press junkets or they're in that sort of like press mode and like, they're just giving you kind of like the one liners and they're giving you sort of like the, just whatevers. But I think it's really unique when you can, um, when you can have a conversation with someone who talks about something a lot, but you talk about something different, right?
1: Well, that's, uh, that blah, try this again in English. That becomes my job then to come up with questions yeah, that I know they haven't heard. Yeah. And for me, having now done so many interviews, that's one of the things that I really enjoy. I give myself a challenge yeah, to ask a question yeah. that I've never asked anybody.
0: Mm, I like it, that.
1: And it, it comes in the form of just the natural conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's really funny because the, the best example that I can always think of, and it's happened quite a bit. There are a few questions I've asked that I'm very proud of at the time, but one that always sticks with me. I was interviewing Portugal, the man, and we were at uh, K-Rock, okay. and they were doing uh, K-Rock sound space. And I was interviewing the lead singer and the drummer, who at the time was new. This was several years ago. And the lead singer was telling a story about being in a Cadillac, with Neil Young at Bonnaroo listening to Led Zeppelin. The label had set that up as his birthday present. And the drummer was like, what? He's like, you never told me that story. <laughs> and um, he's like, that's amazing. So I asked the drummer. I'm like, who would you want to sit in a Cadillac and listen to Led Zeppelin with? Mm. And it's really funny. He goes, Emma Watson. He's like, but then I would want to make out with her, so never mind. And I'm like, he's like, and it's not good makeout music. We're both like, dude. Do you ever see Fast Albums at Ridgemont High? Yeah. Zeppelin 4, Side 2, <laughs> right? Although the irony is they're not actually playing Zeppelin 4 on that album. I believe it's Physical Graffiti is the one they're playing. Correct. But that being said, so he's like, okay, cool, Emma Watson. So that wasn't the question, however. We then got to another point where we were talking about the fact they were from Alaska. This was around the time of Sarah oh. Palin. Yes. So we were talking about you know, her, and they were saying that you know, we don't like her politically, but we would have to have her back. Hmm. If, in fact, you know, they're like, if, if, if we got into a fight, we would have her back, even if we don't like her. So this led to the conversation because we've now talked about Sarah Palin and we've talked about makeout music. The greatest question ever, what music would you use to seduce Sarah Palin? Yeah. What <laughs> would you use to make out with Sarah Palin? <laughs> Not that you would want to, but it's funny. He re- answered the question. I can't remember his answer now, but they actually cracked up and they answered. But that's one of those ones where you are doing it based entirely on the fact that, you know, you cannot script that question. No. In a million years. Yeah. That comes about just from the nature of the conversation.
0: Who sings that song? Sarah.
1: Sarah. Sarah? Jefferson Airplane. Is that how it no, is? No, Jefferson Starship. I'm Jefferson sorry. Starship? That'd right, be, but it's funny because the there's also a Fleetwood Mac song, Sarah. Yeah,
0: that's the song I would use to make out with Sarah Palin. Okay.
1: <laughs> I would use none because, you know... <laughs> I think a better question would be what music would you use to repel Sarah Palin ah yeah there you go You know, I'd probably put on some Slayer I was going to say Slipknot Okay, either yeah. one would work I either, think. Yeah. either one would work Yeah, yeah. No, you would be interested in us anyway so who cares do you
0: ever interview Slipknot do you ever get to sit down with any of those guys oh yeah I've interviewed yeah. Corey a bunch of times
1: I love talking to him
0: man they're I, I'm like dying for a Slipknot documentary they're one of the most fascinating bands to me ever and, and mainly because the community aspect of it because they're kind of like a community mm-hmm. they're
1: so different
0: you know, uh, the little that I do know about them, um, very different individuals. So I'm sure that was, that was, fun. I always yeah. enjoy talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. Corey Taylor seems like a cool guy, you know, he is a very cool guy, uh, very smart, educated. Um, so that's really cool. So one of the things I'm stoked for you in your life is you've got a new podcast coming out called my turning point. Correct. Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. So, you know, this is this is something that I'm interested in because masculinity and manhood—they're turning points. We talked about pivots into manhood and rites of passage and the things like that. And so I think it's going to be really awesome to hear from musicians and people like that about things in their life. But talk a little bit more about the podcast. Like, what can people expect? Like, what what's yeah? Where'd you come up with the idea? You know, uh, it's funny.
1: It? I don't even know where I came up with the idea. It was just basically that I was talking with uh, Live by Live, which is you know one of the companies I work with. Mm-hmm. And we were discussing the idea that for a podcast, because, you know, it it needed to have a central theme, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so something that was like a hook for every week, people knew what they were going to get when they tuned in. And so we came up with this concept of, uh, I came up with this concept of my turning point. And I think it's just having been at Forbes, the types of things that interest me, yeah. I've now changed where I realized that, you know, successes can be defined in so many different terms. Mm. And it's interesting just to talk to people about what success means to them. Mm-hmm. But so for the podcast, the concept is essentially it's an interview show, but it begins with the question, you know, pick the one moment in your life that led you to be where you are and who you are today. And it's really fascinating because like Duff McKagan was on and he talked a great deal about his sobriety and, and, you know, getting into martial arts post sobriety, Mm -hmm. excuse me, because at that point he realized that he needed something to do with all that energy Mm -hmm. and he didn't know he had no center to his life. You know, he had nearly died with Guns N' Roses, understandably, mm-hmm. and basically then needed to figure out, you know, he knew he needed to get sober, but what to do being sober. Yeah. And that's where martial arts came in. And 25 years later, he still practices with the same sensei. Wow. Uh, Wayne Coyne, so far from the Flaming Lips, had the most it. and it's funny because Wayne also did, I had a TV show that aired on Hulu and Amazon, still on Amazon Prime called Riffing With, and... I had interviewed Wayne for that, and I've known Wayne for years, and he tells this story I had never heard before that freaking blew my mind about the fact that he was working in Oklahoma City at a Long John Silver's as a teenager, and one night, you know, he's in the store with his coworkers, and someone comes in and robs them a gunpoint, and he's lying on the floor, and he's like, it, it probably could not have been more than a minute, though it feels like forever, yeah. and he just decided in that minute that if he lived, he was going to not go into the family business and go off and do his own thing. And that led to the Flaming Lips because, as he said, if he hadn't been robbed at gunpoint and thought he was going to die, he probably would have, like, all his older brothers had gone into the family business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really fascinating how, and wow. then some people just simply put it on a musical terms. Like, yeah. you know, Gavin Rossdale from Bush talked about the fact that for him it was getting into punk music at 14 and his uh, sister's older boyfriend taking him to the punk clubs and getting mm-hmm. him in uh, bass. Yeah. And so, you know, that combination of being around the older kids – and having a base was when he realized that's what he wanted to do with his life. So it's really interesting how people can sort of take so many different things and turn that into their turning point moment.
0: Yeah. So you may talk about this on the show and I don't want to give any spoilers, but turning that question on you and yourself, what was was your moment? What was your turning point? It's
1: funny actually that you mentioned that because that's actually come to think of it where the idea came from was I just became fascinated with. So, and it's interesting because this is not a, prefer- a professional uh, personal moment, I should say. It's okay. a professional moment. And this was the turning point moment in my career because it's where I realized who I was. I was working around 2000, 2001 for a company called CD Now. And um, it was a great place. you know. And then we merged with another company. And what was interesting about it was crazy. At the time I took the job at CD Now, I was being interviewed by two companies, mm-hmm. CD Now and n2k i decided to go with cd now because i felt like that was a better fit for me anyway yeah <laughs> in the great irony then we merged with n2k so the company that i had chosen not to work for now was becoming my boss mm. and it just wasn't a fit <laughs> i didn't enjoy it but it was funny i was with Allie at the time she got into we were living in new york she got into school in seattle so i had the company transfer me to la in part so i could be you know on the same time zone as her mm-hmm. But then also, because I hated the boss in New York and I felt like being away, I would have more freedom. Yeah. And it just wasn't the case. One day we're on the phone and I'm telling him that, you know, at this time it was like 2000 and I'm like, you know, I'm making about $75,000 a year, so very good money. And, but I'm telling him that, I'm, uh, about, that I have to interview Sinead O'Connor for Request Magazine. He's like, oh, we should film it. I'm like, you can't film it. It's not our interview. Mm-hmm. Request assigned it to me. You know, this was a magazine that that doesn't exist anymore, but a really great magazine back in the day. And, you know, they had a lot of pull and they had assigned it to me. And so I told him we can't because it wasn't our interview. And he goes to me, oh, well, if CD now isn't your top priority, then maybe we have a problem. You know, just trying to be the jerk that he was. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I quit and hung up on him at that moment. Wow. And it was it was it was that moment that I really it's funny. I've been freelance ever since. I did two contracts at Rolling Stone, Chicago Tribune, all these places, but I realized that I couldn't work for someone I didn't respect, and I wasn't going to play the politics in, in a company Yeah, you know that, that wasn't the right fit for me. Yeah, And I mean, it's, it's funny, sometimes that's a detriment. Last year, I uh, edited the CMA program, Country Music Awards program, mm-hmm. and it was not a great experience <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at all. Yeah. Those people are extremely difficult, but it's funny. I actually very specifically wanted the challenge because I knew that at some point it's going to make sense for me to go back into a company. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know that I could exist within that political structure, mm-hmm. you know, because back in the day I couldn't, yeah. I would simply say, fuck off. Yeah. You know?
0: No, I, I absolutely, I absolutely <laughs> know. I mean, I, uh, I've been freelance independent for a while and I started this podcast when I, uh, this idea for this podcast, it came when I was driving for Lyft and Uber But it came for me personally uh, when I was – engaged when I was getting married. And then the jets really got turned up when I found out I was going to raise a son. And I'm like, how am I going to do this? What does it mean to raise a son today? I have no how to. And so that's when I just started talking about it and opening it up. So it's funny to hear you say that, you know, you had a moment that was sort of personal, but it was kind of professional too. And the same thing kind of happened to me. I just, I realized what was important to me was being with my family, having that freedom to, um, work when I want and not when I want. Now, that's it's very difficult. You know what I mean? Like, this is not an easy thing to do. It's very difficult. And living in Los Angeles, where it's very expensive, it's even harder to do. But uh, I also know myself, and I think this has been a part of my my initiation into manhood, has been understanding who I am and what I am capable of and what I'm not capable of, what I want to do, what I don't want to do. And um, I'm like you, If and there, there's just... I, if it's, if the environment is toxic, like I just shut down completely and, and I have yet to find, uh, an environment that's not toxic to the point where like, I just can't handle. So I just, I do the thing on my own, man. I'm just on my own living life and figuring it out. And I feel like that, that I'd rather spend my energy doing that than trying to, like you said, like try to please some asshole boss who means nothing to me.
1: Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to share on that?
1: Yeah. Well, no, it's interesting because I, I think that, you know, before we came on air, you were talking with me about loss, you know, yeah. and, and it's an interesting thing because one of the things that I've learned and, and you know, is that very simply, if you follow yourself, mm-hmm. other people will follow. And it's funny because I do a, a, this is a, a, a preamble into this, but I do a, a thing for Forbes. I, I one of the things for me is to always keep things fresh. I get very bored very easily. Mm. And so I created this column called Who I Am which was basically picking the 10 moments or 10 works of art or combination thereof that shaped who you are. Mm. And so I started it with Shirley Manson from garbage because we were doing tons of interviews and I would always love talking to Shirley, but I needed to do it in a way that was just, you know, we joked about the fact that if we had to do another one of the new album is the best album I've ever done, we were both going to shoot ourselves in the head and this format took off. But it's funny. I did it once myself just because I felt like if I'm going to ask all these people to do a list, That I should do my own. And one of the moments I picked on there was being in Hebrew school at 12 years old. And it's funny. I went to a school in the valley really close to here called Temple Judea. Mm -hmm. And you could easily walk out at the break to go to sneak out to the liquor store. Mm -hmm. And there was one time I was going to go. And I was like, and, you know, I asked a bunch of people if they wanted to go. And every single person said no. And I was like, fine, fuck you. I'm going on my own. And then six people ended up following me. Mm. And it was such an interesting moment because I realized that, you know, if you do what you want to do, people will follow you. Yep. You know, and I realized that I was more of a leader than a follower. Mm. Or maybe not a leader, but definitely followed my own path. You're an individual. Why I bring this up is that, you know, earlier this year, my dog got sick and um, passed away. And it was interesting because one of the things that I appreciated was I shut down for four days. Mm-hmm. During the time she was, I didn't fucking talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything. But I had an interview scheduled. This was on April 4th she got sick. I had an interview scheduled on April 5th with Bert McCracken from The Used oh. and Anthony Green. And it was oh the God. two of them together, right?
0: <laughs> like like my younger self just like died.
1: And they're both <laughs> friends. They're great dudes. I've known them both for years. And I was like, dude, sorry. Because I'm like, I know this is very difficult to schedule this. I'm like, there's no way. I'm not going. Mm-hmm. you know. And we did it again a couple weeks later back to the beach. They both came up. They both hugged me. They both offered condolences. And it's like, you know, it's understand if you put priorities in place for what matters to you, mm-hmm. other people will respect that. And I think that goes back to following yourself when it comes to work to whatever it is. Yeah. You know, if you're miserable in your job, mm-hmm. you're not going to be happy and it's going to infect everything that you do. Mm-hmm. And so having that but and having the freedom to be able to say, and you know, last year, my mom got sick and passed away and, and having the freedom to be able to say all right, I'm not working now. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't answer to anybody. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take time off to do what it is that I need to do. Mm-hmm. It's so much more valuable in terms of success than money.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I think this is especially helpful for any younger listeners who listen to this, who are maybe like chasing that white rabbit or are on the climbing the corporate ladder or are sacrificing things about themselves for the greater good. Um, I think this is important to hear, as you know, I'm 35 and coming into. You know the second half of my life, and I'm starting to really realize that I've wasted a lot of time. You know, chasing frivolous things, and, and maybe you feel the same way too.
1: Um, I don't know. I look at it. It's an interesting thing. I was talking about this with someone the other day. I mean, look, I don't believe in regret, and the simple reason why is if you're happy with where you are in life right now, there's no point in regret because every step leads you to where you are. Yeah. You know. So that being said, of course there are always things that you could have done differently, but it's interesting because. A lot of my success as a journalist came later in life, Mm -hmm. and I actually, later in life being relative, I mean, you know, 30s, it wasn't like, you know, but it certainly wasn't an almost famous thing, Mm -hmm. and I'm actually very grateful for that, because as I've talked about with people, if I had the same access at 21 that I do now, I would have been dead in a ditch, you know, because, I mean, I wouldn't have had the the wherewithal or the reason to say, okay, here's a perfect example, right? You know, I'm single, you know. Ladies. I have so much access to everything in the world, right? Yeah. You know, whatever it is, it doesn't, you know. And being in LA, you meet some really skanky women. Yeah. You know, you meet a lot of great women too, Mm -hmm. but you definitely meet a lot of like, oh, we should go to this. We should go to this. The advantage I have being older is like, dude, no, you may be super hot. Yeah, but I know exactly who you are. You
0: know how this ends. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm.
1: And, you know, and just like that or, you know, people are like, oh, yeah, you know, you should come hang out with us. You should party with us. You know, you should do this. I'm like, no, dude, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, again, if that had happened at 21, you buy into that bullshit. Mm -hmm. You buy into that hype and you believe it. Yeah. Being older, you're like, no, I know exactly who you are.
0: Yeah. And you realize it's all transactional, right? We talked about L.A. being very transactional. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a blessing, right? Like we talk, uh, there's a word, you know, people talk about FOMO and there's this like missing out thing. And like, man, the only thing I've had FOMO on recently is I missed Paul McCartney at the Dodger Stadium. Like that was honestly the, the if there's one thing I think I could pick that I've missed recently that I was like, damn, I really regret that. It was that,
1: but you were there. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna li- you know I'm yeah. not gonna lie to make you feel better. It was freaking great. But it's funny because with the thought of FOMO, this was interesting, right? Because I, I again I can go to most anything. Yeah. And it's funny. My friend uh, had a place called No Name, which didn't shut down. It was just on Fairfax, a very famous. Oh menu. yeah, yeah. I know yeah. that place. Yeah, and yeah. At four, three, two Fairfax. Yeah. And it was funny because we're friends on social media, and he posted something on a Tuesday night. Uh, well, you know, basically, you're not gonna want to miss this. I'm not gonna say what it is, but it rhymes with like. Slave lapel. Mm. And it turned out then at two in the morning, I went to sleep early that night because I wasn't feeling well or I was just tired. I had been out a lot. Yeah. And I get up and then at two in the morning I see on the social media posts um, that, you know, that was the night that John Mayer and Nas and Dave Chappelle did a tribute to Prince in a club for 150 people. Mm-hmm. And I could have been there. I could have easily been there. Yeah. And, but then I was like, you know what? I was like, there was something else ridiculous. Oh, I think like three days earlier, I had gone to a uh, the same day I had seen, or four days earlier, I think it was, we had seen Blink-182 do a private rehearsal just for me and Monica. And oh at gosh. the end was also a, um, oh, then that night we went to see Sting play in a backyard for 150 people for a benefit. I'm like, you know what? I, I can't do everything. Mm-hmm. There's simply no point. Yeah. You no, know? Yeah, you, you can't And I catch can't up. feel like I've missed out on anything right. for the amount of shit that I get to do.
0: Yeah. So... And, yeah. And I mean, this is LA. You could just walk into a hotel cafe on any sort of night and someone will come up and just be like, oh, uh, Sean Mendez is here and is going to play like two or three songs. I did that. My Mine is much less cool, but the only thing that's sort of relative that happened, my wife and I like to go to comedy shows and we went to HaHa ha, uh, in, in uh, North Hollywood and... Um, because we were living there at the time, and uh, Gabriel, uh, Gabriel Iglesias, Fluffy, uh, I guess, oh, is, nice. is, is, he showed up and did um, did like 15, 20 minutes. And uh, if I'm going to be honest, I would have rather seen the other comedians. <laughs> <laughs> like he's workshopping material, like so I get it, but like I don't know. It, he basically, eh, it was just not my, it was not my thing. So um, there's a couple there's there's a couple of questions that I have. Um, but it sounds like you you mentioned one, right? Like I was talking about uh, one thing I was wondering about, like, you know, they always say, don't meet your heroes, you know, and you talked about meeting, you know, Tom and getting to talk to them. And I was just wondering if you, as someone who has probably met a lot of people's heroes, if you find that to be true, or if you, if you feel that that is sort of a misconstrued on, and that just people are people, you know?
1: Um, it's interesting because it's, I I find both parts of it to be true. Yeah. I'll give you an example, right? I, I mean, when Bowie passed away, um, you know, I, I was actually kind of in a sense glad mm. that I had never gotten to talk to him. Yeah. And the reason is, is very simply because then he remained this mythological rock star to me. Yeah. He remained this larger than life figure. Yeah. That I had never gotten to talk to, mm-hmm. you know, but I mean, at the same time, I've had tea with Neil Young, Stevie Wonder, you know, I've done all of it, Right. And most everybody has been cool. So I wouldn't yeah. say that it doesn't necessarily shatter the myth. Yeah. You know, I I think like it's funny growing up, my favorite band was Zeppelin because they were everybody's favorite band. Yeah. And there was a mythology about them that's just different than anybody. Right. Right. And I've gotten to interview Robert Plant, uh, I believe, three times now. And it's fascinating because he's such an interesting, smart dude. Yeah. And he's one of what he does that's so impressive is he makes you feel like you're engaged. But then you realize when you get done that he hasn't really given anything away. Wow. So it is it's just simply he's able to do that because he's so smart. Yeah. And and so I think that there's something to be said for both. But that being said, if you do meet people, look they, yes, they are just people. People there is, are people. A, there is a normalcy mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. You know, but at the same time, there's also, you know, obviously you became a fan for a reason. Yeah. And going back to my Tom Waits story, there's nothing wrong yeah. with, you know, letting them you know what it means to you want to take one
0: last little break and talk about one of my favorite websites and a resource that's been super helpful to me uh, as I have gotten whiskey and rye off the ground and that's canva.com. Canva is a great website if you are someone who's Dipping their toes into graphic design, or someone who needs graphic design on a regular basis but doesn't really know where to start, Canva is a great resource. Um, I uh, I have not signed up on one of their premium levels. I just use their free stuff, which is really great. They have tons of templates, and they've got great things that you can look at for free. But they also have levels that you can sign up for, uh, where you get access to classes, and they give you some more uh, access to different types of backgrounds and templates to use. So um, that's always a great option as well. So uh, really thankful for Canva.com and the work that they do and I use them all the time so uh, if you are looking to get into graphic design or need another resource for your graphic design uh, for your social media or just your personal marketing uh, canva.com is great so head on over to canva.com and check them out all right here's the conclusion of my interview with steve balton you know, you brought up loss, which is kind of the last thing I want to talk about before we start to wrap up. Um, you know, I think we don't think about how celebrities, they, we think they've gained everything, right. They've gained all this notoriety. They've gained all this stuff, but what they've also lost is that privacy, you know, like Mm -hmm. when you reach a certain level, um, You are always going to be photographed. You're always going to be on. You know what I mean? I think of someone like Bieber or Avril Lavigne Lavigne or Ariana Grande or, you know, Kardashians, anybody. Uh, You can't go anywhere. You can't go shopping. You can't go to, you know, Legoland. You can't go anywhere. So I think there's a loss that they have been lamenting too. And I think that's an important component to, to life, but specifically masculinity, um, men dealing with loss and how we overcome those things, I think is really important. And especially how we process them in the moment and then sort of move through. So you mentioned that you lost two extremely important people to you within, you know, the last year. So how has that changed? Has that changed your writing at all? Has that changed how you live in the moment? Like, has that changed your perspective on things at all?
1: Interesting question. Um, No, but it's funny. My dad had cancer when I was six years old, and he was told that he only had three months to live. Mm. So it always has been a part of me. And it's funny because I think that, you know, um, you know, look, relationships with parents are always complicated. Yeah, they are. It is very, you know, my mom was a great person. I loved her. I miss her. But, you know, there were times when she freaking drove me nuts. Mm -hmm. I'm very grateful that, you know, the last few months of her life, we knew she was sick, I got to spend a lot of time with her, mm-hmm. right? But when Sierra passed, my dog, I, I mean, still the most devastating thing I've ever done. You know, mm-hmm. Absolutely destroyed me. But it's interesting, I could at least look at it as I valued her every day, mm-hmm. you know? And simply because I knew, you know, I, I kind of grew up with that spectrum. So I don't think it's changed. It has changed me immensely, but it hasn't changed how I think about things. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so it yeah. hasn't changed. Like, I always tried to appreciate things to begin with, mm-hmm. but it's funny. I was talking about this with someone the other day. Remember the movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall? You ever see that? Oh, yeah. Great yeah. movie, Great right? Great movie, yeah. Love that film. Yeah. Uh, biggest crush on Mila Kunis, Ah, uh, How yeah. could you not? Uh, I, it's funny. I've interviewed her, and, and the single most beautiful woman I've ever met. Like, I couldn't even look at her. It was like, looking at <laughs> the sun. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. But in that movie, there's that great scene where they're at the top of the cliff and they're talking about the fact that maybe that's why they can't be hurt Mm. because they've already, you know, been to the, you know, definitely losing Sierra, which was the thing I was most afraid of in the world has changed me in the sense of very simply, you do develop a sense of fearlessness because nothing is ever going to hurt that much. Nothing will ever. That was the thing that I was most afraid of in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, and having gone through that, you know. Yeah. It, it simply is like, okay, well, you kind of take an attitude to bring it on universe because what's left, right? You've already took what meant the most to me. Yeah. You know, so it definitely changes you in that respect. And it's interesting because I did end up writing a piece about Sierra for Forbes, which was funny because Forbes, I have no editor and they let me do whatever I want. Oh, wow. Right. That was the only piece they ever said anything about. But what was fascinating was for all the celebrities I've interviewed. I got people, that piece probably generated more personal response. I got people tracked me down on social media to start writing me about their dog and telling me how the piece made them cry. Wow. You know, which was an amazing feeling, you know? Yeah.
0: It's so, so it's, in you releasing this, other people are having a cathartic experience as which well. Which as an
1: artist is what you most want in the world. I talk about this with musicians all the time as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, it's funny because I hadn't thought about this till not long ago. But, you know, having interviewed so many people, people ask me what makes a great song, songwriting, blah, blah, blah. Universality. Mm -hmm. Any great songwriter can take a song and no matter what they're writing about, it it applies to your life. Yeah. And so as an artist, when you write something that makes other people cry, not comparing myself to songwriters, by the way, because this was an article. But still, it is an amazing feeling.
0: Yeah. I keep bringing up Almost Famous, but I think about that scene where Jason Lever, he's like,
1: I get people off. <laughs>
0: I look for the one guy in the crowd who's not getting off, and I get him off. And that you can print. <laughs> you know. And um, as someone who used to do music, uh, I did music in a past life, I relate to that so much. There is something about making eye contact with a perfect stranger, and you see them either singing your songs or just jamming out to your music. And you're like, is this real? It's this real life. How do how do I get to do this? It's really incredible. Uh, well, thank you for sharing um, about that. And I, I would just in in thinking about loss and how you've overcome it. Is there anything that you would share to uh, the men who are listening right now, who are in the middle of a loss or or are on the or it's on the horizon? Is there anything that you would suggest on on how they might you know get through it?
1: Just be honest about it. Hmm. You know, just just I mean. It's funny after Sierra passed because I was having such a hard time with it I went to a grief counselor and yeah. it's funny I didn't I, and it, I think part of it was because I was like wait I've already lost my mom I've lost friends I've lost grandparents I had lost other pets yeah but losing Sierra just fucked with me in a way that was so different than anything else yeah and I talked to the grief counselor about it and one thing she said was basically it, it, it hurts like hell there's she's like I wish there was a treatment that you could take there's nothing Mm-mm. so but the thing is to be honest about it because the more you try and mask it, because I, I think the thing that I was very lucky about was, A, I had the freedom work-wise, like I said, to be able mm. to take time off and do what it was I wanted to do. But I also was very upfront about the fact that things are not okay. And if you just pretend things are okay, <laughs> I'm going to fucking kill you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yeah. it's not, don't, don't write me and ask me for tickets or to do this or whatever because things are not cool. Yeah. Right now, and, and it's funny because I remember I did one post about that, and this woman wrote in. I, I this was on Facebook where my stuff is private, you know. So she was a friend, but I don't know her like we have a lot of mutual friends and you know work in the same business. And she said it was such a smart post because after her dog passed away, you know, basically she didn't really tell people what she was feeling, mm-hmm. and she would just get so angry because everybody just treated her like it was normal, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think people are understanding if you let them know, but you have to let them know. How you're feeling. If you don't tell people how you're feeling, mm-hmm. they're not going to know what you're going through. Yeah. you know, And it's also I mean, look, it, it has to strike a boundary. No one wants to listen to that person who sits and whines every single day. Right. But at the same time, let people know that, you know, you're not OK and that things are not normal because you're just going to get angry if they sit there and act like there's nothing wrong.
0: Yeah. And I love what you said about, like, just being open and honest with people and just being like, you know what, actually, don't bother me today. Don't talk to me today. Like, I'm not, like, today's not the day. But then there's other days where you are willing to listen. And I think this is where having community is really important,
1: you know? So you can share with one person one day. You can share with another person another day. You can kind of distribute the load. Yeah, and some days you want the break. Some days you don't want to think about it. Some days work is helpful. Yep. And then there are other days where it's just like, but again, People aren't going to know where you are if you don't tell them and Mm -hmm. you can't expect them Mm -hmm. to mind read. So it's up to you to communicate, you know, and then once you do that, I mean, look, it's an interesting thing, too. A lot of one of the things the grief counselor said to me that was very fascinating was be very careful who you talk with, because a lot of people don't know how to deal with grief and they'll just try and throw a blanket on it. And I'll be honest, when you go through loss, you lose a lot of friends. Yeah. You know, because people don't know how to deal with it Mm -hmm. and you become angry that they're not there for you. You also very significantly, you change a lot. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't see someone for six months following a loss, they're not going to know you mm-hmm. when it's all done. So, yeah. you know, but you have to, before you can say, okay, I'm not friends with you anymore, not doing this. You have to communicate how you're feeling yeah, because otherwise it's on you. Once you've done that, yeah. then, you know, you can say, okay, well, they weren't there for me when I needed them, but at least I, I let them know. Yeah. You know, and I will say as well, I think that's one important thing for, I think one of the issues that comes up a great deal as someone who's gone through loss, you know, and also someone who's had a lot of friends who've gone through it is that, you know, a lot of people get scared by Mm -hmm. loss Mm -hmm. and they don't know what to say or do. And I can tell you as someone who's lost, you know, a mom, my dog, all of this, like just be there. Mm -hmm. That's it. People, everybody knows that you have no magic thing to say. There isn't a fucking thing that anyone could say in this world that's gonna make me feel better about losing Sierra. Mm -hmm. So all you can do is be there. And when you're there for your friends, when they come out of it, and eventually they will, they appreciate that. Mm -hmm. They will remember who was there and who was not. So don't be afraid to to don't be afraid of saying something stupid Mm -hmm. or of of you know of feeling like you don't know how to help. Because we know you can't help. Yeah. You know, just be there.
0: And I think that's great advice for men specifically who are trying to help other men go through stuff. Because I think for me, one of the things that does prevent me from stepping into a space to help someone else out is I'm afraid I'm gonna say the wrong thing. But I neglect that my presence just being there holding the space is it means so much.
1: Exactly yeah. it does. That's the thing. It really does. Because, you know, if you're not there, trust me, as someone who's gone through a lot, we notice it. Yeah. And we notice the people who are there as well. And again, who make the effort? Like there's no, you know, I mean, we have a a very close mutual friend, a couple of them who just lost their their grandmother. uh, grandmother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like suddenly, yeah, Yeah. just being there Mm -hmm. is, that's the most important thing that Mm -hmm. you can do. And it's funny because as you say, you know, it's an interesting thing. We'll wrap up on this, but I was just dealing with some issues with my dad Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, some health issues. But it's funny because part of it is very simply, you know, he's 75, you know, grew up in a different generation and sucks at communicating. And I was able to talk to him about that. And it's funny because you learn from your parents also what you don't want to do. Yeah. And so I think it's important. You learn like, okay, if you want to be able to have friends and sustain friendships, you need to put yourself out there, too. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting because I, I do think for a lot of guys. It can be very difficult. Mm-hmm. I do tend to get along better with women, but I also have a lot of guy friends, mm-hmm. you know. And, and very simply, like, you know, just be yourself. Don't feel this need of like, okay, you know, especially now, you know, where there is such this idea of, you know, I mean, in the post Me Too movement and all that, you know, like, dude, don't be afraid to say You know, mm-hmm. don't be afraid. Yeah, don't be afraid to say something. Your friend's an asshole. Don't be afraid to tell your friend he's an asshole. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I mean, yeah.
0: Would that be your advice for for men who are, you know, just kind of like
1: trying to be in relationship with other men? Like, just don't be an asshole. <laughs> That's my advice in life. It's That's funny from work friend yeah. standpoint. I tell people that all the time. What's the biggest way to get hired? Mm-hmm. Just be cool. Because like, look <laughs> don't from, be an mus- from a music standpoint. Yeah. There's a million people who can play. Yeah, They're okay. gonna pick the people that they want to be around. Yeah. Opening ask you pick that way, you know, and I would say in general, you know, because I think also it's funny, you know, going back more specifically to the idea of the advice to men, let's face it, a lot of people, especially growing up, you know, you have this idea of who you're supposed to be. And maybe again, you're afraid to be, something other than what everybody wants you to be. And that's a lot of times how you end up being such an asshole. Yeah. How you end up being misogynistic, how you end up doing all of this. And, and I say this, by the way, with the fact that none of us are freaking perfect. Right. You know, but, you know, don't be afraid to, to you know, goes back to the famous, that guy we won't name in the Billy Bush conversation mm-hmm. of, you know, oh, that's just locker room talk. No, none of my fucking friends talk that way. I don't have
0: one person in my life that talks that way. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, a, yeah. you know. Yeah. No, that's it um all right my last question for you greatest song about loss
1: well you know it's funny when i ask people this i always say the first thing that comes to mind is the best so i'm gonna go for a dancer jackson brown okay yeah because that's awesome. just the first one that popped into mind yeah although i will say that eric Clapton, tears in heaven ever since sierra died make me ball my fucking eyes out every time uh yeah yeah that
0: one would do it to me too yeah cool dude thank you so much this was awesome appreciate yeah. your time bro thank a- you awesome Thanks for having me. yeah there you have it friends thank you so much for tuning into my interview with steve balton that was a wild ride and i enjoyed every second of it i hope you did as well so thanks so much to steve uh for your time and for all that you shared i want to make sure that you are tuning into his podcast my turning point that will be out on spotify very soon um and then i i didn't get a link to any of the articles that steve written has written i'm sure they're all over the internet so if you just google steve balton and uh Steve Balton, Rolling Stone, Steve Balton, LA Times, Steve Balton, Forbes. I'm sure all that stuff will come up. So um, thank you to Steve for your time and uh, best of luck with the new podcast. Can't wait to check it out. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to Amp Rehearsal and say thank you to them. Uh, They have come through for me a couple of times and letting me rent some equipment for this podcast. So I want to say thank you to them. They're amazing. If you are in Hollywood, North Hollywood, the surrounding areas looking for a great rehearsal spot, Amp Rehearsal in North Hollywood is great. Make sure to check them out. Uh, My next guest will be up in two weeks and I'm going to be talking with a good friend of mine, uh, but also someone who does amazing work uh, with black men. Uh, His name is Jamari White, and uh, he is a life coach. He's an entrepreneur, uh, but he is also a transgender man. So I cannot wait to have him um, share what is on his heart about masculinity and to have a great conversation with him. So that interview will be out in two weeks so make sure you are back for that I uh, want to say thank you as always to the Deep West for providing the wonderful music for this make sure to check them out be on the lookout for new tunes from them and as always you can connect with me and the show on the social medias if you're looking to connect with me via the show uh, and have something specific about the show you want to talk about uh, you can hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at Whiskey and Rye Pod uh, and if you want to just talk to me personally uh, you can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Ryan Charles L. So that will be it. We will see you in two weeks. Until then, I raise my glass to you. Cheers.